0: Chapter 8 of First Lensman by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Lensman, Chapter 8. That murderous attack upon Virgil Sams, and its countering by those new super lawmen, the Lensmen, and by an entire task force of the North American Armed Forces, was news of civilization wide importance. As such, it filled every channel of universal Telenews for an hour. Then, in stunning and crescendo succession, came the staccato reports of the creation of the Galactic Patrol, the mobilization, allegedly for maneuvers, of Galactic Patrol's grand fleet, and the ultimately desperate and all too nearly successful attack upon the hill. "'Just a second, folks. We'll have it very shortly.' You'll see something that nobody ever saw before, and that nobody will ever see again. We're getting in as close as the law will let us. The eyes of the Telenews Ace Reporter and the telephoto lens of his cameraman stared down from a scooter at the furiously smoking, sputteringly incandescent surface of Triplanetary's ancient citadel. While upon dozens of worlds, thousands of millions of people, pack themselves tighter and tighter around tens of millions of visiplates and loudspeakers, in order to see and to hear the tremendous news. "'There it is, folks. Look at it. The only really impregnable fortress ever built by man. A good many of our experts had written it off as obsolete long ago, but it seems these lensmen had something up their sleeves besides their arms. (laughs) Heh, heh. And speaking of lensmen, they haven't been throwing their weight around, so most of us haven't noticed them very much. But this reporter wants to go on record right now as saying there must be a lot more to the lens than any of us has thought, because otherwise nobody would have gone to all that trouble and expense, to say nothing of the tremendous loss of life, just to kill the chief lensman, which seems to have been what they were after.' We told you a few minutes ago, you know, that every continent of civilization sent official messages denying most emphatically any connection with this outrage. It's still a mystery, folks. In fact, it is getting more and more mysterious all the time. Not one single man of the Black Fleet was taken alive. Not even in the ships that were only holed. They blew themselves up. And there were no uniforms or books or anything of the kind to be found in any of the wrecks, no identification whatever, and now, for the scoop of all time, Universal Telenews has obtained permission to interview the top two lensmen, both of whom you all know, Virgil Sams and Rod the Rock Kinnison, personally for this beam. We are now going down by remote control, of course, right into the galactic patrol office, right in the hill itself. Here we are now. "'If you will step just a little closer to the mic, please, Mr. Sam's, or should I say—' "'You should say First Lensman Sam's,' Kinnison said brusquely. "'Oh, yes, First Lensman Sam's. Thank you, Mr. Kinnison. Now, First Lensman Sam's. Our clients all want to know all about the lens. We all know what it does, but what really is it? Who invented it? How does it work?' Kinnison started to say something, but Sam silenced him with a thought. "'I will answer those questions by asking you one,' Sam smiled disarmingly. "'Do you remember what happened because the pirates learned to duplicate the golden meteor of the triplanetary Service?" "'Oh, I see.' The Telenus Ace, although brash and not at all thin-skinned, was quick on the uptake. "'Hush-hush! T.S.' "'Top secret. Very much so,' Sams confirmed. "'And we are going to keep some things about the Lens secret as long as we possibly can.' "'Fair enough. Sorry, folks, but you will agree that they're right on that.' "'Well then, Mr. Sams, who do you think it was that tried to kill you? And where do you think the Black Fleet came from?' "'I have no idea,' Sam said slowly and thoughtfully. no.' no idea whatever." "'What? Are you sure of that? Aren't you holding back maybe just a little bit of suspicion for diplomatic reasons?' "'I am holding nothing back. And through my lens I can make you certain of the fact. Lensed thoughts come from the mind itself, direct, not through such voluntary muscles as the tongue. The mind does not lie, even such lies as you call diplomacy. The lensman demonstrated, and the reporter went on. "'He is sure, folks, which fact knocked me speechless for a second or two, which is quite a feat in itself. Now, Mr. Sams, one last question. What is all this lens stuff really about? What are all you lensmen, the Galactic Council and so on, really up to? What do you expect to get out of it? And why would anybody want to make such an all-out effort to get rid of you?' and give it to me on the lens, please, if you can do it, and talk at the same time. That was a wonderful sensation, folks, of getting the dope straight and knowing that it was straight. I can and will answer both by voice and by lens. Our basic purpose is... And he quoted verbatim the resounding sentences which Mentor had impressed so eradicably upon his mind. You know how little happiness, how little real well-being there is upon any world today. We propose to increase both. What we expect to get out of it is happiness and well-being for ourselves, the satisfaction felt by any good workman doing the job for which he is best fitted and in which he takes pride. As to why any one would want to kill me, the logical explanation would seem to be that some group or organization or race, opposed to that for which we lensmen stand, "'decided to do away with us and started with me. "'Thank you, Mr. Sams. "'I am sure that we all enjoyed this interview very much. "'Now, folks, you all know Rocky Rod, Rod the Rock, Kinnison. "'Just a little closer, please. "'Thank you. "'I don't suppose you have any suspicions, either, any more than—' "'I certainly have,' Kinnison barked, "'so savagely that five hundred million people jumped as one. "'How do you want it?' "'Voice, lens, or both?' Then, on the lens, "'Think it over, son, because I suspect everybody.' Uh, "'Both, please, Mr. Kinnison.' Even Universal Star Reporter was shaken by the quiet but deadly fury of the big lensman's thought, but he rallied so quickly that his hesitation was barely noticeable. "'Your lens thought to me was that you suspect everybody, Mr. Kinnison?' "'Just that.' everybody. I suspect every continental government of every world we know, including that of North America of TELUS. I suspect political parties and organized minorities. I suspect pressure groups. I suspect capital and I suspect labor. I suspect an organization of criminals. I suspect nations and races and worlds that no one of us has yet heard of, not even you, the top-drawer news hawk of the universe." "'But you have nothing concrete to go on, I take it?' "'If I did, do you think I'd be standing here talking to you?' First Lensman Sam sat in his private quarters and thought. Lensman Drawnfire of Rigel Four stood behind him and helped him think. Port Admiral Kinnison, with all his force and drive, began a comprehensive program of investigation, consolidation, expansion, redesigning, and rebuilding.' Virgilia Sams went to a party practically every night. She danced, she flirted, she talked. How she talked! Meaningless small talk for the most part, but interspersed with artless questions and comments, which, while they perhaps did not put her partner of the moment completely at ease, nevertheless did not quite excite suspicion. Conway Costigan, lens under sleeve, undisguised but inconspicuous, rode the ether lanes, observing minutely and reporting fully. Jack Kinnison piloted and navigated and computed for his friend and boatmate. Mason Northrup, who, completely surrounded by breadboard hookups of new and ever more fantastic complexity, listened and looked, listened and tuned, listened and rebuilt, listened and, finally, took bearings and bearings and bearings with his ultra-sensitive loops. Dall Nalton and Kenobos, with dozens of able helpers, combed the records of three worlds in a search which produced as a byproduct a monumental who's who of crime. Skilled technicians fed millions of cards, stack by stack, into the most versatile and most accomplished machines known to the statisticians of the age. And Dr. Nels Bergenholm, abandoning temporarily his regular line of work, devoted his peculiar talents to a highly abstruse research in the closely allied field of organic chemistry. The walls of Virgil Sam's quarters became covered with charts, diagrams, and figures. Tabulations and condensations piled up on his desk and overflowed into baskets upon the floor. Until— "'Lensman Olmstead of Alphacent, sir,' his secretary announced. "'Good. Send him in, please.' The stranger entered. The two men, after staring intently at each other for half a minute, smiled and shook hands vigorously. Except for the fact that the newcomer's hair was brown, they were practically identical. "'I'm certainly glad to see you, George. Birkenholm passed you, of course.' "'Yes. He says that he can match your hair to mine, even the individual white ones. And he has made me a wig-maker's dream of a wig.' "'Married?' Sam's mind leapt ahead to possible complications. "'Widower, same as you. And—' "'Just a minute. Going over this once will be enough.' He lensed call after call. Lensmen in various parts of space became on rapport with him, and thus with each other. "'Lensman, especially you, Rod. George Olmsted is here, and his brother Ray is available. I am going to work.' "'I still don't like it,' Kinnison protested. It's too dangerous. I told the universe I was going to keep you covered, and I meant it. That's what makes it perfectly safe. That is, if Bergenholm is sure that the duplication is close enough. I am sure. Bergenholm's deep, resonant, pseudo-voice left no doubt at all in any one of the linked minds. The substitution will not be detected. And that nobody knows, George, or even suspects that you got your lens. I am sure of that," Olmsted laughed quietly. Also, nobody except us and your secretary knows that I am here. For a good many years I have made a specialty of that sort of thing. Photos, fingerprints and so on have all been taken care of." Good. I simply cannot work efficiently here. Sam's expressed what all knew to be the simple truth. Dranvire's a much better analyst-synthesist than I am. As soon as any significant correlation is possible, he will know it. We have learned that the Town Morgan crowd, Mackenzie Power, Osman Industries, and Interstellar Spaceways are all tied in together, and that Thionite is involved. But we have not been able to get any further. There is a slight correlation, barely significant, between deaths from Thionite and the arrival in the Solarian system of certain Spaceways liners. The fact that certain officials of the Earth Screen Service have been, and are spending, considerably more than they earn, sets up a slight but definite probability that they are allowing spaceships or boats from spaceships to land illegally. These smugglers carry contraband, which may or may not be thionite. In short, we lack fundamental data in every department, and it is high time for me to begin doing my share in getting it. I don't check you, Verge. None of the Kinnisons ever did give up without a struggle. Olmsted is a mighty smooth worker, and you are our prime coordinator. Why not let him keep up the counter-espionage, do the job you are figuring on doing yourself, and you stay here and boss it? I have thought of that a great deal, and have— Because Olmsted cannot do it. A hitherto silent mind cut in decisively— I, Rularion, of north-polar Jupiter, say so. There are psychological factors involved. The ability to separate and to evaluate the constituent elements of a complex situation. The ability to make correct decisions without hesitation. As well as many others not as susceptible to concise statement, but which collectively could be called power of mind. How say you, Bergenholm of Tellus? for I have perceived in you a mind approximating in some respects the philosophical and psychological depth of my own." This outrageously egotistical declaration was to the Jovian a simple statement of an equally simple truth, and Bergenholm accepted it as such. I agree. Olmstead probably could not succeed. "'Well, then, can Sams?' Kinnison demanded. "'Who knows?' came Bergenholm's mental shrug, and simultaneously, "'Nobody knows whether I can or not, but I am going to try.' And Sam's ended, almost, the argument by asking Bergenholm and a couple of other lensmen to come into his office and by taking off his lens. "'And that's another thing I don't like,' Kinison offered one last objection. "'Without your lens, anything can happen to you.' "'Oh, I won't have to be without it very long.' And besides, Virgilia isn't the only one in the Sam's family who can work better, sometimes without a lens. The lensman came in, and in a surprisingly short time went out. A few minutes later, two lensmen strolled out of Sam's inner office into the outer one. "'Good-bye, George,' the red-headed man said aloud. "'And good luck.' "'Same to you, chief.' And the brown-haired one strode out. Norma, the secretary, was a smart girl and observant. In her position she had to be. Her eyes followed the man out, then scanned the lensman from toe to crown. "'I've never seen anything like it, Mr. Sams,' she remarked then. "'Except for the difference in colouring and a sort of, well, stoopiness, he could be your identical twin. You two must have a common ancestor, or several, not too far back, didn't you?' We certainly did. Quadruple-second cousins, you might call it. We have known of each other for years, but this is the first time we have met." "'Quadruple-second cousins? What does that mean? How come?' "'Well, say that once upon a time there were two men named Albert and Chester.' "'What? Not two Irishmen named Pat and Mike? You're slipping, boss?' The girl smiled roguishly. During rush hours she was always a fast, cool, efficient secretary, but in moments of ease such persiflage as this was the usual thing in the first lensman's private office. Not at all up to your usual form, merely because I am speaking now as a genealogist, not as a raconteur. But to continue. We will say that Chester and Albert had four children apiece, two boys and two girls, Two pairs of identical twins each. And when they grew up, halfway up, that is, don't tell me that we are going to suppose that all those identical twins married each other. Exactly. Why not? Well, it would be stretching the laws of probability all out of shape. But go ahead. I can see what's coming, I think. Each of those couples had one and only one child. We will call those children Jim Sams and Sally Olmsted. John Olmstead and Irene Sams. The girl's levity disappeared. James Alexander Sams and Sarah Olmsted Sams. Your parents. I didn't see what was coming, after all. This George Olmstead, then, is your... Whatever it is, yes. I can't name it either. Maybe you had better call genealogy some day and find out but it's no wonder we look alike. And there are three of us, not two. George has an identical twin brother.' The red-haired lensman stepped back into the inner office, shut the door, and lensed a thought at Virgil Sam's. "'It worked, Virgil. I talked to her for five solid minutes, practically leaning on her desk, and she didn't tumble. And if this wig of Bergenholms fooled her so completely, the job he did on you would fool anybody.' fine. I've done a little testing myself on the keenest men I know, without a trace of recognition so far." His last lingering doubt resolved, Sams boarded the ponderous, radiation-proof, neutron-proof shuttle-scow which was the only possible means of entering or leaving the hill. A fast cruiser whisked him to Nampa, where Olmsted's accidentally damaged transcontinental transport was being repaired and from which city Olmstead had been gone so briefly that no one had missed him. He occupied Olmstead's space. He surrendered the remainder of Olmstead's ticket. He reached New York. He took a copter to Senator Morgan's office. He was escorted into the private office of Herkimer Herkimer III. "'Olmstead. Of Alphacent.' "'Yes.' Herkimer's hand moved ever so little upon his desk top here. The lensman dropped an envelope upon the desk in such fashion that it came to rest within an inch of the hand. Prints, here. Sams made prints. Wash your hands over there. Herkimer pressed a button. Check all these prints, against each other and the files. Check the two halves of the torn sheet, fibre to fibre. He turned to the lensless lensman, now standing quietly before his desk. Routine. A formality in your case, but necessary. Of course. Then for long seconds the two hard men stared into the hard depths of each other's eyes. You may do, Olmsted. We have had very good reports of you. But you have never been in Thionite? No. I have never even seen any. What do you want to get into it for? Your scouts sounded me out. What did they tell you? The usual thing, promotion from the ranks into the brass, to get to where I can do myself and the organization some good? Yourself first, the organization second? What else? Why should I be different from the rest of you? This time the locked eyes held longer, one pair smouldering, the other gold-flecked, tawny ice. Why, indeed, Merkimer smiled thinly. "'We do not advertise it, however.' "'Outside I wouldn't either. But here I'm laying my cards flat on the table.' "'I see. "'You will do, Olmsted, if you live. There's a test, you know.' "'They told me there would be. "'Well, aren't you curious to know what it is?' "'Not particularly. You passed it, didn't you?' What do you mean by that crack?" Herkimer leapt to his feet, his eyes, smouldering before, now ablaze. Exactly what I said, no more and no less. You may read into it anything you please. Sam's voice was as cold as were his eyes. You picked me out because of what I am. Did you think that moving upstairs would make a bootlicker out of me? Not at all. Herkimer sat down, and took from a drawer two small, transparent, vaguely capsule-like tubes, each containing a few particles of purple dust. "'You know what this is?' "'I can guess.' "'Each of these is a good heavy jolt, about all that a strong man with a strong heart can stand. Sit down. Here is one dose. Pull the cover.' "'Stick the capsule up one nostril, squeeze the ejector, and sniff. "'If you can leave this other dose sitting here on the desk, you will live, and thus pass the test. "'If you can't, you die.'" Sam sat and pulled and squeezed and sniffed. His forearms hit the desk with a thud. His hands clenched themselves into fists, the tight-stretched tendons standing boldly out. His face turned white. His eyes jammed themselves shut. His jaw muscles sprang into bands and lumps as they clamped his teeth hard together. Every voluntary muscle in his body went into a rigor as extreme as that of death itself. His heart pounded. His breathing became stertorous. This was the dreadful muscle-lock so uniquely characteristic of thionite, the frenzied immobility of the ultimately passionate satisfaction of every desire. The galactic patrol became for him an actuality, a force for good pervading all the worlds of all the galaxies of all the universes of all existing space-time continual. He knew what the lens was and why. He understood time and space. He knew the absolute beginning and the ultimate end. He also saw things and did things over which it is best to draw a kindly veil, for every desire, mental or physical open or sternly suppressed, noble or base, that Virgil Sams had ever had was being completely satisfied. Every desire. As Sam sat there, straining motionlessly upon the verge of death through sheer ecstasy, a door opened and Senator Morgan entered the room. Herkimer started, almost imperceptibly, as he turned had there been, or not, an instantaneously suppressed flash of guilt in those now completely clear and frank brown eyes. "'Hi, chief. Come in and sit down. Glad to see you. This is not exactly my idea of fun.' "'No? When did you stop being a sadist?' The senator sat down beside his minion's desk. The fingertips of his left hand began soundlessly to drum.' "'You wouldn't have, by any chance, been considering the idea of—' He paused significantly. "'What an idea! Herkimer's act, if it was an act, was flawless. "'He's too good a man to waste. "'I know it, but you didn't act as though you did. "'I've never seen you come out such a poor second in an interview. "'And it wasn't because you didn't know to start with just what kind of a tiger he was—' That's why he was selected for this job. And it would have been so easy to give him just a wee bit more. That's preposterous, chief, and you know it. Do I? However, it couldn't have been jealousy, because he isn't being considered for your job. He won't be over you, and there's plenty of room for everybody. What was the matter? Your bloodthirstiness wouldn't have taken you that far under the circumstances. Come clean, Herkimer. ''Okay. I hate the whole damned family!'' Herkimer burst out viciously. ''I see. That adds up.'' Morgan's face cleared. His fingers became motionless. ''You can't make the Sam's wench, and aren't in position to skin her alive. So you get allergic to all her relatives. That adds up. But let me tell you something.'' His quiet, level voice carried more of a menace than most men's loudest threats. Keep your love-life out of business and keep that sadistic streak under control. Don't let anything like this happen again. I won't, Chief. I got off the beam. But he made me so damn mad. Certainly. That's exactly what he was trying to do. Elementary. If he could make you look small, it would make him look big. And he just about did. But watch now. He's coming, too. Sam's muscles relaxed. He opened his eyes groggily. Then, as a wave of humiliated realization swept over his consciousness, he closed them again and shuddered. He had always thought himself pretty much of a man. How could he possibly have descended to such nauseous depths of depravity, of turpitude, of sheer moral degradation? And yet every cell of his being was shrieking its demand for more. His mind and his substance alike were permeated by an overmastering craving to experience again the ultimate thrills which they had so tremendously, so outrageously enjoyed. There was another good jolt lying right there on the desk in front of him, even though thionite sniffers always saw to it that no more of the drug could be obtained without considerable physical exertion, which exertion would bring them to their senses. If he took that jolt it would kill him. What of it? What was death? What good was life, except to enjoy such thrills as he had just had and was about to have again? And besides, Thionite couldn't kill him. He was a superman. He had just proved it. He straightened up and reached for the capsule. And that effort, small as it was, was enough to bring First Lensman Virgil Sams back under control. The craving, however, did not decrease. Rather, it increased. Months were to pass before he could think of Thionite, or even of the colour purple, without a spasmodic catching of the breath and a tightening of every muscle. Years were to pass before he could forget, even partially, the theretofore unsuspected dwellers in the dark recesses of his own mind. Nevertheless, from the store of whatever it was that made him what he was, Virgil Sams drew strength. Thumb and forefinger touched the capsule, but instead of picking it up, he pushed it across the desk toward Herkimer. "'Put it away, Bub. One whiff of that stuff will last me for life.' He stared unfathomably at the secretary, then turned to Morgan and nodded. "'After all, he did not say that he ever passed this or any other test. He just didn't contradict me when I said it.' With a visible effort, Herkimer remained silent, but Morgan did not. "'You talk too much, Olmstead. Can you stand up yet?' Gripping the desk with both hands, Sams heaved himself to his feet. The room was spinning and gyrating. Every individual thing in it was moving in a different and impossible orbit. His already splintered skull threatened more and more violently to emulate a fragmentation-bomb black and white spots and vari-colored flashes filled his cone of vision. He wrenched one hand free, then the other, and collapsed back into the chair. "'Not yet. Quite,' he admitted through stiff lips. Although he was careful not to show it, Morgan was amazed, not that the man had collapsed, but that he had been able to so soon lift himself even an inch. Tiger was not the word. This Olmstead must be seven-eighths dinosaur. "'It takes a few minutes. Longer for some, not so long for others,' Morgan said blandly. "'But what makes you think Herkimer here never took one of the same?' "'Huh?' Again, two pairs of eyes locked and held, and this time the duel was longer and more pregnant. "'What do you think?' How do you suppose I live to get as old as I am now? By being dumb? Morgan unwrapped a venerian cigar, settled it comfortably between his teeth, lit it, and drew three slow puffs before replying. Ah, a student. An analytical mind. He said evenly, and apparently, irrelevantly. Let's skip Herkimer for the moment. Try your hand on me. Why not? From what we hear out in the field, you have always been in the upper brackets, so you probably never had to prove that you could take it or leave it alone. My guess would be, though, that you could." "'The good old oil, eh?' Morgan allowed his face and voice to register a modicum precisely metered of contempt. "'How to get along in the world. Lesson one. Butter up the boss.' "'Nice try, Senator. "'But I'll have to score you a clean miss.' Sam's, now back to almost normal, grinned companionably. "'We both know that if I were still in the kindergarten, I wouldn't be here now.' "'I'll let that one pass. This time.' Under that look and tone, Morgan's underlings were wont to cringe. But this Olmstead was not the cringing type. "'Don't do it again. It might not be safe.' Oh, it would be safe enough. For to-day, at least. There are two factors which you are very carefully ignoring. First, I haven't accepted the job yet. Are you innocent enough to think you'll get out of this building alive if I don't accept you? If you want to call it innocence, yes. Oh, I know you've got gunnies all over the place, but they don't mean a thing. No? Morgan's voice was silkily venomous. No. Olmstead was completely unimpressed. Put yourself in my place. You know I've been around a long time, and not just around my mother. I was weaned quite a number of years ago. I see. You don't scare where the damn. A point. And you are testing me, just as I am testing you. Another point. I'm beginning to like you, George. I think I know what your second point is, but let's have it, just for the record. I'm sure you do. Any man, to be my boss, has got to be at least as good a man as I am. Otherwise, I take his job away from him. Fair enough. By God, I do like you, Olmstead. Morgan, his big face wreathed in smiles, got up, strode over, and shook hands vigorously and Sam's, scan as he would, could not even hazard a guess as to how much, if any, of this enthusiasm was real. "'Do you want the job? And when can you go to work?' "'Yes, sir. Two hours ago, sir.' "'That's fine!' Morgan boomed. Although he did not comment upon it, he noticed and understood the change in the form of address. "'Without knowing what the job is, or how much it pays?' Neither is important, sir, at the moment. Sams, who had got up easily enough to shake hands, now shook his head experimentally. Nothing rattled. Good. He was in pretty good shape already. As to the job, I can either do it or find out why it can't be done. As to pay, I've heard you called a lot of things, but Piker was never one of them. Very well. I predict that you will go far. Morgan again shook the lensman's hand, and again, Samms could not evaluate the senator's sincerity. Tuesday afternoon, New York spaceport, spaceship Virgin Queen. Report to Captain Willoughby in the dock office at fourteen hundred hours. Stop at the cashier's office on your way out. Goodbye. End of chapter nine.